Hi. I got a tape I want to play. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Your move, creep. Take me to the volcano! So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Come with me if you want to live. This town needs an enema. Like I said, I need a bacchiatomy. Yes, that's a human ear, all right. I got a bad feeling about this. So it's come to this. <laughs> well, I guess the mood is a little buoyant. Hello, That's boys and girls. Yeah. It's me, Charlie. I'm Eric. And this is a movie podcast. And oh boy, we got are, a laugher. We here, are we here for a fun one today? Hi, guys. Canon Films really knew how to, <laughs> how to grime up a screen sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Can, can you tell that Eric and I just sat through Death Wish 2? <laughs> I'm a big fan of, uh, of Charles Bronson. It's kind of crazy oh, yeah. that we haven't covered Bronson yet. 80 plus episodes in. And uh, this is a thing that... Bronson's a guy that really got me into B-level cinema. Because he was such a big star. He but was. did such B movies. He was such a name that you, he made Simpsons references. <laughs> but... As a kid, I didn't know a single Charles Bronson movie, but I knew who Charles Bronson yeah, was. Yeah, Charles Bronson had... like lived on the uh, the outskirts of my life. Exactly. <laughs> as a as a child. He was there. He was there. Like though. he was omnipresent because he was in so many movies and uh was such a figure and it seemed like, you know, you mentioned on the Beastmaster episode <laughs> that HBO uh, could have stood for, hey, Beastmaster's hey, on, or yeah. uh, TBS was the Beastmaster station. See, that's how I viewed Bronson movies. Oh. It would always be on, you know, on Sunday on TNT, like a Bronson death wish. You know, it'd be all the, like a at 11, p- 11 a.m., yeah, 1 yeah. p.m., and 3 p.m. It'd be that or... Like a Burt Reynolds three-peat. Before it was the Superstation, TBS was the Bronson Station. No, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, it was, felt like the Bronson Station for 15 years. <laughs> Bronson was making up programming on TBS on weekends for over a decade, it seemed like. An icon. But I never saw <laughs> I wasn't watching no. Death Wish. I didn't, we didn't have cable. You know, we were children at that time, yeah. I watched, I watched cable for pro wrestling and like Nickelodeon and MTV. I wasn't watching... Kinjite, forbidden subjects. You should not have been. No, no. Your parents would have been doing something wrong. I had you been. I love. uh, I love Bronson's career trajectory. I love guys like outsiders like this that become big stars. Let's talk about Charlie Bronson here for a second. This is that's why I'm surprised we haven't talked about him more. Just because he's really important to my love of these kind of movies, and he was a guy that. Went from uh, a regular actor, some TV work, uh, some side roles in important movies like The Dirty Dozen. Sure. To the Great in- Escape. Yeah, right? Uh, so to being in good movies in uh, in your 30s and 40s, and then suddenly becoming one of the two or three biggest box office draws in your 50s. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. It's it's like uh, if, Bert, if uh, Bruce Willis didn't do Die Hard in the 80s. If his big movie came when he was like 54. Right. And up until then, he would just done uh, good side work in movies. But also, it's like there's a certain, especially because of, we're, we're talking Death Wish here, especially. Now, yeah. in 1974, when the first Death Wish comes out, Charles Bronson turns into this uh, cult oh, icon. Huge. 
uh, who who kind of defines a, a, a stereotype, an archetype, a, a, an actual character in a series of movies. <laughs> yeah. Like somehow he just embodied a whole genre. Charles Bronson became like an an old man action hero. Yeah. As, but people bought but, it as Charles Bronson, but also in the grimiest, <laughs> shittiest time in American history. So <laughs> I love whenever an actor, the dirtiest can, decade of all. I, I love actors like this that can get to the point of, of becoming their own like cottage industry. Yeah. And it's weird to think that like the most, like Liam Neeson now is the most Bronson of this genre. Right. This is the guy do people go they don't care what the character's name is they're going to see a Liam Neeson movie. They know right. exactly what they're getting from a Liam Neeson movie and one year one of them will be good. I really liked uh, his one from last year the or a couple years ago Cold uh, Cold Pursuit. Okay. It was a good I have, Neeson. I saw that at the, that the Third Street the Third Street Cinemas. Three dollar tickets now. So I saw it there and it kicked ass. And then sure. the next year you go and it's like, oh, the Neeson isn't as good. Like it's right. not as uh, w- tightly written. It's, uh, it's all on a plane. The fighting is yeah, off a bit. Exactly. And so people would just go to see a Bronson movie, but they did it for like twenty years. Mm-hmm. And so this guy's the box office draw on the level of Eastwood and uh, probably Robert Redford in the seventies. Right. But it's a guy in his fifties. Well, that idea of like. <laughs> Either consistency or you you go for this guy. You know we celebrate guys like Sid Haig and Brian Dennehy. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what you're getting when you go see those guys. You're gonna get something good. Totally. In, in a very specific manner, and yeah, I think we've, Bronson we've, covers that as well. For we've his talked role. about how our music uh, taste change or mu- movie taste changed over uh, as the more movies we watch, and how now we kind of seek out things for the actors mm-hmm. in them instead of the recommended movies. Definitely. It's more like here's a Bronson movie that I haven't seen. You know, I'm seeking out the guys I like to watch to just see them in whatever material they did, not just whatever's recommended. And yeah, now you get a guy like Liam Neeson who's doing this same kind of. Sometimes it's cool, sometimes it's yeah, well, you know, that was the movie we watched. And then the other guy I thought of was Adam Sandler. Uh-huh. Adam Sandler's his own industry at this point. He just makes money to hang out with his friends and bring his family on set and put his mom in in a one-line role in the movie and then just go to like... And his kids. And yeah, and just go to else. Barbados with all his seven best buddies and get paid $20 million for it. Still hang out with Rob Schneider for yeah, some reason. Yeah, you're still bringing Schneider along, even with his like weird... Like QAnon adjacent yeah. stuff, you're just like you know you could you're sand you're the Sandman. It's like, <laughs> you, can, you can control this crew, you but can, Rob knows not to talk about that shit while he's yeah, on set. He doesn't do it when he gets to go to <laughs> Africa for yeah. a month. He he plays he plays by the rules there. Yeah, and so I love that Bronson's this alternate timeline Adam Sandler that is bringing his family and his kids on set, but his sets are in the shittiest parts oh my of God. L.A. He's not going on like, well, hey, let's uh, film a movie in Barbados. It's like, yeah, we can we can stay in Watts. A lot of night shoots. A lot of night shoots in Bronson's (laughs) schedule. Yeah, he's really busy between 9 p.m. and 5 (laughs) a.m. on these things. He's always very occupied in the darkness in these movies. But this is a dark movie. This so we started with uh, we didn't start with Death Wish for the podcast. We went straight to Death Wish Two because you know what. 
you know Death Wish. You've been there, you've seen it. It's, well, this just feels like more of a a crazy sidestep and almost an answer to the kind of cult that had followed, sprung up yes. around the original, which is almost a decade before this one. There was a big gap in these sequels. Like yeah, eight what years. happened there? So was it just that Golden Globus, the guys who you know ran uh, Canon, Canon yeah. Films, they bought the property as they started up in the 80s and they said, let's make some more of these? They saw dollar signs in bringing back the... I mean... They probably witnessed firsthand the the grassroots kind of cult that sprang up around New York when Death Wish came out. You know, that was the real, like, they talk about in Death Wish 2, you know, the point that, like, ever since this vigilante's been around, crime's down 50%. Like, right. this death, the original Death Wish was such a huge uh, boom that, you know, audiences are going wild during screenings of it and then getting amped up enough to stop muggers. <laughs> New York getting to yeah. the point where, you know, before the Son of Sam, before all that, when for a while, like, neighborhoods were fighting back. And it was inspired from this old, because it was, that's why Bronson worked, because he was this guy in his 50s. Right. Showing people to fight back. He was an architect, you know? Yeah, New York in the 70s was a dangerous place. God, I would have been chewed up, man. It was uh, covered in graffiti, and at some point, uh, the crime was just so commonplace that... Yeah, there was no sense of security, and then Man, I've lived chaos soft. kind I of ensued for a bit. Yeah, and guys would uh, guys who would fight back would become these cult cult icons or, or you know folk heroes as yeah. it were, and uh, yeah, that's that's what Death Wish is. It just fed off that. Um, the idea that I love though with Death Wish is, and especially the sequel part two, which is actually I love that. Michael Winner directed the first one and came back and directed the second one. Michael Winner was a and the and did the third one as well. Uh, Winner was Bronson's guy. They, was I think guy. that was his biggest collaborator as a filmmaker. Well, I felt so he, he did the mechanic. He did all. Okay, the, good. Like he that was makes a, sense. Because, he was a Bronson guy because this movie feels like a natural glove fit, right? <laughs> yeah. Like we've talked about uh, recently. We we uh, talked about Brandon Lee. And we've talked about people who are not natural on camera. <laughs> right. Bronson and Winner obviously have the relationship where, sure, man, this thing is so natural. Totally. And real on, and, and Bronson is so it's weird. just himself <laughs> in such a way that when the shit does hit the fan, it really creates an impact because you're not watching an actor in a movie. You're watching Charles Bronson in his home. Yeah. dealing with this shit or Bronson going out is on the really streets. one note, but I really love his specific kind of charisma. <laughs> it's a great note. It's a it's such a good note. Yeah. It's so iconic. Yeah. And you know, it's fa- he's kind of famously underspoken once he got to a certain box office draw because it made it easier to dub the movies into <laughs> Italian and other languages. Sure. There's some movies, man, like Mr. Majestic, which will do an episode oh, on eventually Guys, for sure. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> yeah, do some pre homework on this if you haven't seen Mister Majestic. It's, it's not spelled like the traditional Majestic. Yeah, there's a Y so, in there, but uh, yeah, it's worth it. Bronson as a uh, revenge-seeking watermelon farmer <laughs> is incredible. Say no more. <laughs> Say no more. Uh, but once he became such a name, man, movies like Mister Majestic. There's so many shots of Bronson like from behind. It's right. like, man, they're not even showing his mouth. He's just dubbing in any language. <laughs> He's banging these out in a weekend for making millions over in these Italian market. He's efficient. And uh but that efficiency 
is what's coming through. This is guys he's comfortable working with, and I kind of like. Cannon became known for such. Man, that Superman four. Right, stuff is like that. Such a iconic mismanaging of funds and overshooting your shot to acquire right. a property. But just, I mean, they really made the most off of a property like Death Wish. They made this a, a video store staple. In the early 80s, by stuff like this, this, definitely. Yeah, that's they, where they made their money. Yeah. Their commitment to Norris and Bronson just to find a whole decade. And it's crazy looking looking back like that. There's all... With streaming and all these newer guys, they're not going to have the same impact that now it's, you know, Vinnie Jones and guys mm. like that in three dozen movies that are streaming on different platforms now. But these once a year Bronson and Norris kind of canon films were really at a time when our viewing options were less. Yeah, it's crazy how the market could be dominated by someone like Bronson. Maybe not dominated, but he had his place in it. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, there's just so much going on right now that I don't know if that would... Uh, I mean, <laughs> there's movies on Netflix where it's like major stars are starring on movies in, on Netflix that nobody watches. <laughs> nobody knows. You know it's what I mean? Fi- they're filled with fake movies, right? And yeah, and so... They all have really half-assed poster art that's just like faces of the people. It's like yeah. anybody could have thrown that picture together. It's like, did you hear this that guy movie? that's in... Yeah, the Chris Hemsworth is in some <laughs> action movies. Like, why, why would I know that? Yeah. I don't know. But But this was an era where people were like, when is the next Charles Bronson? <laughs> where can I see it? And how much is it? And it I'll was go. really cool to me as a kid when I'd go through the video store and there would be a section that would have just like, you know, 16 <laughs> Charles Bronson <laughs> movies, you know? Yeah. You saw that with Jackie Chan and stuff, but you'd walk through the section to get to a genre, and some genres were just a guy. And Bronson was one of these guys who just had like, again, we've said this before, as a kid I was like, I didn't know there could be five of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's it just him in different poses with a gun. Yeah. Always with a gun. Maybe it's pointing to the left or the right, or maybe he's holding it up next to him, or yeah, something it's like that. It's just wild right? for somebody's like... Uh, or he's got a rocket launcher. <laughs> His box office peak comes from like age 50 to 70. Oh. Is is their star run. And you that's, know, that's amazing. I love that because that means there's hope for us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's also that all you and I have to do, Eric, <laughs> is grow a lovely mustache and maybe you know shoot some hoodlums. There's and something we to be get said about actors that that get cool roles because of aging cool. Oh, there yeah. are stories of of guys who weren't really actors, but then at 54, it's like you know you got a good face for 54. Mm-hmm. There is uh, some luck of the draw. There's some weird guys that have made uh, definitely unexpected leaps, but never to the height of. Bronson, who looked like uh, my high school science teacher. He looked like <laughs> Mr. Moore. He was this kind of, you know, narrow, you know, narrow kind of squinty-eyed, mustached guy who, you know. I mean, by the time we see him in 1982, yeah. in, in Death Wish 2, he's got crow's feet on crow's feet. Yeah, His eyes can barely open. He's got those kind of eyelids where like half the eyelid is just... <laughs> permanently shut well, over geez. the eye one thing i don't okay i don't I'm, he's already gray like he's 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 i love how he's just got the like they don't they don't bother to either darken him in or or make the gray anything it's just the scattered gray in his hair well we've talked about this before we're still in the beautiful era of of hair 
on men. Yes. In, He's got the uh, feather cinema. over the ear hair. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you, got you gotta love that. You know, but the uh, the other guys like, you know, uh, Anthony uh, Fran- Francios, he's got the kind of the fuzzy comb over, you know, it's oh. like we're still in the era of, Ooh, of guys having the hair. Real bad. His yeah. hair was real bad. Yeah, that was <laughs> It's kind of blondish too, which doesn't doesn't help. It just, it makes it look Not sillier. as bad as that blonde gang member that we that we see we'll, I'll, we'll, I'll have stories eyebrows. about him before i got another 30 or 40 gushing over bronson to do yeah because what the cool thing about old man bronson is that he's like you can tell he's like a cool in shape old guy mm. he's wearing like his corduroy pants but it's like i he's the coolest old guy ass kicker in these things he's that's a smooth dude that's one of the reasons dude. i wanted to start with death wish 2 is he was an old man ass kicker in. He used weapons in Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Now he's a sixty-something-year-old guy who's just <laughs> running down toughs, just fighting it out with punks. And the fights keep getting kind of grittier. And I like that they they maintain he's a little in over his head, but he's also gained weird old man powers mm-hmm. uh, since Death Wish one. So yeah, if. To catch people up, Death Wish one, he, he the wife is raped, uh, the, the the daughter's raped, the wife is killed, something like that. I think the daughter witnesses the and, mom uh, being raped. He ends up just kind of becoming this random vigilante in New York City, just coming across muggers everywhere he looks and gunning <laughs> them down. Yeah, that's New York in the seventies as depicted in film, uh just frightens me. Uh, well, it just feels so scary of a place. I gotta for say, me. L.A. in the '80s doesn't look much better in this movie, man. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because I've driven through L.A. a lot more and, <laughs> and been through the bad neighborhoods enough where it's just like, all right, I'm not wanting to stop, but you know, I've seen it. Right. I've right. been here. I've I've been around it. Whereas I've been to New York a few times, but never felt like. Okay, I'm in a spot that uh, I've stepped too far down this two blocks. Like, I've been there in L.A. a few times, and I guess come out the other side with, okay, well, that was all right. Right. I made it through that part of Oakland. Okay, that's it's... that's okay. But uh, in New York, I've I've sticked, <laughs> stuck to the more safer area. I guess I've been on the subway at night, but not 1974 oh. subway yeah, at exactly. night. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Holy jeez, you know. So, yeah, in the first Death Wish... He doesn't go for straight revenge on the people who attacked his wife, mm-hmm. Hope Lang, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, Aww. yeah. we'll have to jump back to, to Death Wish. I know, it's been a few I've and seen one, these. And one I've... of the rapists is Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, nothing like the violence that comes back in Death Wish 2. Mm-hmm. Not only does he have these newer old man powers... But his, uh, it's now strictly a revenge film. Whereas the first one was him just stopping whatever crime he happened to stumble across. Just sticking up for the yeah. little guy. This is him with like five heads he wants on stakes. So, going after these Yeah, guys. what happens is he runs afoul of a street gang in LA. They uh, take his wallet. They Attack his housekeeper, attack his... Uh, yeah, they, they take his wallet his... and get his address, and he yeah. chases one of them down and beats him up in the alley, That's and then true. they choose to target him. Yeah, they go after they him. know where he lives. His daughter, we talked about this this poor, this poor actress, girl. Robin Sherwood, we talked about her as one of the tourist trap victims, and she gets what I think in the 80s is like the worst casting choice 
Not no um, not not for her. She's she's great. The the casting I'm talking about is the role of Charles Bronson's daughter. Exactly. In any movie is just like, I got the job, I got the job. It's like, oh, what's the character? It's like, well, I'm Charles Bronson's daughter. It's like, oh, yeah, she's oh, not I'm in so the sorry. she's not the daughter in the first one, just in the second one. Yeah, she so, gets to play the traumatized uh, daughter. By the time we meet her in part two, she's ca- almost she's catatonic. catatonic. Yeah, she doesn't talk, but it's the uh, saddest character. She, it is she such gets, a sad, no, woeful it's so character. Bad. It's, it's so, so bad. tough. They like silently kidnap her and just she like she is so def- she's so helpless for uh, all her screen time. It is so tough. It's rough. It the first the 20 minutes characters. of this movie is, guys, this the first 20 girl, mi- minutes of this movie is This poor girl. Hard I, like I said, when you get this role, it is like, boy, I am. this is a tough thing for me to pull off for two weeks. She is a <laughs> mute because she's traumatized from witnessing this assault. So now she's a woman in her early 20s who is like almost childlike yeah. in her regression. And Bronson is like, you know, the one that's like, is there ever any chance she'll be normal? You know, it's <laughs> pretty good, Bronson. <laughs> I just want to know. And uh, <laughs> so he's just like taking her to these like activities that, you know, are trying to trigger something that connects her right. back to the daughter. Like he's trying to buy her ice cream and yeah, shit. I'm yeah, taking you to buy these crystal sculptures, and you know, like you used you to like kites, days. and it's <laughs> such a like God, this this traumatized family right just trying to get away yeah and then he's randomly targeted this poor girl this is the toughest screen role robin sherwood deserves a medal for just going this yeah she, yeah if you don't think acting is is work but that's when the movie just gets so dark and mm-hmm. so tough to watch that canon really wanted to carve out what they do and they really did it with Death Wish too. That's what you know. Those the, these kind of well, their whole thing is pushing the envelope. Back in the eighties, as the it Death were. Wish as a property, really like I'm surprised it came back like this. But I get it. It's almost like it took over the kind of violence away from slasher movies without people realizing they're seeing a because mm. it didn't really make a joke out of the violence in any little way. Right. It really showed how grisly. Uh, things can be yeah even if some of the you know the the depiction of gangs just roving <laughs> the daylit streets of every part of los angeles is i'm not positive that's the case uh <laughs> these gangs are pretty uh brazen yeah with their with their new wave hairdos i their... hate these fu- i hate this fucking gang <laughs> these guys one thing you can't say this movie's glorifying this kind of behavior because they make the most fucking hateable gang yeah. of assholes yeah every one of like, these guys sucks no, <laughs> so nobody hard. has mistaken these guys for cool cool depictions there's, of bad guys there's not even one guy where you're like all right i get it like yeah. all of these guys are just like shut the fuck <laughs> up i hate you so much yeah uh, these, this is ziggy in the wire level <laughs> hatred i hate this gang. just seven various ziggies i hate these guys so much but here's the thing. So they attack. They uh, the daughter tries to run away from them. Dies in the escape. That's our kind of trigger for the oh, revenge. Dude, she doesn't just die. Well, this poor girl gets I the worst. <laughs> this girl has like she, the she, try- wor- she almost escapes 
if there wasn't that wrought iron fence outside Dude. of the warehouse, why is that fence located in the industrial district? This is such a cru- you can never convince me that that wasn't. Uh, I'm not going to look <laughs> up to be there if there's a Roger Ebert review of Death Wish Two. But this specific two minutes of the film seem like the kind of two minutes that he would base an entire eight-paragraph, zero-star review around. I'm going to tell you right now. On the Death Wish (laughs) 2 (laughs) IMDb page, there's two videos on the Death Wish 2 IMDb page. The trailer, which clocks in at two minutes, and one with Roger Ebert's face, which clocks in at 29 (laughs) minutes and 51 seconds. (laughs) 30 minutes on Ebert just trashing it. Yep. Just being offended by Death I don't, Wish 2. Yeah, it just says video, <laughs> Death Wish 2, but it's minutes. Ebert and he's got his hand up in the still. Doing that like when he's doing that. And another and thing. They like, and they hate women and yeah. they hate women, like he says with yeah, all slashes. he's just listening a bunch of slash comments. And it's 29, yeah, it's probably oh the entire God. episode of Siskel and Ebert dedicated to panning Death oh Wish 2. Gosh. I'm not going to deny I knew it. it. Yep. I knew it. But, I mean, but I kind of get it. I kind of get it. <laughs> well, here's uh, what I was going to say is that at, at, it's a sickening opening, right? And yeah. But, at, but uh, you hate the gang so much. But then when this architect turned vigilante, Paul Kersey, starts going after them, you feel no catharsis. You feel no, no satisfaction. There's no relief. There's no celebration of violence. And I think this movie... I don't know if it was on purpose or if that's just how I think of violence now, but yeah, there was no satisfaction. No, and well, and it's just such a message. There's some important like, differences, yeah. uh, with Death Wish Two from other uh, revenge kind of movies that were out at the time. Something like uh, The Exterminator, sure, you know, with Robert Ginty. You know, these kind of Revenge movies. It's a popular genre. Yeah, well, this, it's a it's, it became a cool low budget eighties uh, right. uh, cash in, the same way slasher movies did. And there's no joy or creativity in the deaths mm-hmm. in Death Wish Two. There's no satisfying amounts of torture for the victims that you'd even get the sickos into right he just kind of joylessly finds and kills the people that can't bring his daughter back he gets all of the guys who yeah and and i do like that he kind of has this targeted tracking these guys down whereas the first one is so much more random just going out at night looking for a fight was the the first one but just the yeah there's there's nothing but pain in this movie like there's no moment and, and it's uh I think it makes a statement. I think it actually mm-hmm. makes a valid statement. And I I uh, recently was on Reddit and came across this post about Igmar Bergman talking about Taxi Driver. Okay. And I just want to quickly... Yeah, yeah. Igmar Bergman in 1960 made The Virgin Spring, which became Last sure. House on the Left. <laughs> and he kind of, in that way, in my opinion, really kind of spurred the rape revenge genre yeah the virgin spring is a rape revenge movie that the guy who did seventh seal made oh yeah and it was 1960 yeah and it's and it's just that's it's graphic the, that's probably the earliest i've seen something like that of yeah this innocent not bothering anybody slightly uh of class blonde white girl just right. bathing by a spring and just getting accosted by three guys who happen to pass by 
that is like I spit on your grave. That's all but, of this. Uh, but yeah. twenty years earlier. It's all de- it's all the death wish stuff. It's the father and mother in the in the Virgin Spring taking revenge yeah. on the people that raped and murdered their daughter. Anyways, he's talking about taxi driver in an interview and he's talking about pornographic violence mm-hmm. and how it's uh not you know, taxi driver is not pornographic violence because it shows the severity and the seriousness and and I think there's a case that Death Wish two <laughs> <laughs> kind of does this artistic anti-violence it's an anti-violence movie well, yeah. in a lot of ways in in taxi driver the the irony was that uh bickle was going insane and then Thinking he just he happened to snap on the right people right and the media turned him into a, a a rejuvenated hero he got rehabilitated and now he's living a normal life after he got that out of his system whereas Kersey in death wish the police are desperate to keep it a secret because they don't want to inspire vigilante killings. Mm-hmm. You know, that's we've seen a lot of vigilante movies like Vigilante, which I love, which fe- features oh, some kind of craven violence. But, but uh, Death see, Wish 2 think, takes it so much farther. I think Vigilante glorifies the, the vigilanteism more. It totally does. It where, get, they get to... Any gang that has Robert Forster and Fred Williamson is going to be like a cool gang. Right. Like, that's cool. Paul Kersey doesn't care about being cool. He's not cool. It's yeah. not cool. It's it's <laughs> not cool. Yeah. And I think it's a very uh I think it makes it a valid thing. I I don't know. It's like No, I I'm a know. big fan of the Death Wish, especially Death Wish 2. Again, that's part of the reason I wanted to start here. Yeah. It's not as exploitative as it gets talked about being. <laughs> you know, the the violence is shocking in it. But I don't think it's glorified in any way. Right. This is the kind of movie where I'm so glad I did not see it when I was younger. <laughs> right. When you're going through that period where you're this like 12 arm. or 13 and like accidentally seeing a boob when you're not supposed to on cable was like, oh, geez, like mm-hmm. keeping this secret. If this had somehow been on and that's the, the depi- like, I can't believe that got exist cut as existed like as that as yeah. the assault exists on film i'm shocked to well, this day i think it's got a very texas chainsaw kind of vibe because the you see very little but yeah it's shot in uh in such a way the whole movie is really shot in such a way that you uh your mind sees more than the eye yeah and uh yeah there's well it's it's that old stephen king thing where he talks about letting you fill in some of the blanks sure like only being so descriptive. This movie comes off. This is the same controversy that came up around Pulp Fiction, where mm. it got the talk of that as mm. the most vile, disgusting, overly sensationally violent movie. And I remember watching this thing on the news, analyzing the violence in Pulp Fiction with Tarantino making the argument that so much of the violence happens off camera. Mm-hmm. So it shows Bruce Willis stabbing a guy with a sword. You see the motion of the sword, but it's all completely framed under the camera. You're not seeing anything in this movie, and it's gotten written about as the most violent thing on film in years. Well, what? So, when you, so when you see Cliff Booth smash that redhead's face into <laughs> yeah, multiple walls, mantle. and yeah. you get to see everything, I was going to say, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is pornographic violence. In the best way. It 
But uh, there's yeah. steps he could have taken that Death Wish Two <laughs> does take. You don't get a shot of the smashed in face. Her hair's hanging in front of her face. You don't get gory, overly gory shots of that guy's bloody mouth after right. it punches him in the. That could have he he could have had teeth flying out of there, man. He could have <laughs> he could have really grossed it up if he wanted Maybe. to. Death, death Wish Two, Death Proof style. Yeah, like right. Like you did in Death Proof. <laughs> like you did yeah. in Death Proof. He's been there. He he watched. He was a fan of Death Wish Two, I'm sure. But it's so crazy where this movie picks this. The violent sexual assault in this is just disgusting and tough to watch. Even though you're not seeing much of anything except the poor maid. What a yeah. talk about two of the most difficult female roles in a movie. The daughter and the maid. That is just thankless work, man. The poor maid. That is awful. Nothing to... She's just trying to make us... Trying to make dinner. Yeah, that's it. And th- that's why the movie... There's no way you could be getting any satisfaction from the heels in this movie. They're despicable in every sense of the word. Right. That main guy with his dumb flat top mullet and shaved eyebrows. Yeah. So I had read that when that guy was cast, he went in there trying to look weird. And he saw he was inspired by a picture of like a cobra. Hmm. And he's like, I think if I like cut my hair short and you know I'll look like a snake. That's you notice he did some weird stuff with his tongue a couple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just anyone who's if you meet anyone in real life who has shaved their eyebrows on purpose, yeah, walk the it's other already direction. Like a, a, Go away. At minimum, a yellow flag. That's <laughs> minimum. <laughs> like, minimum. But so minimum. I read. It's it's funny when you look at a movie like this that's really grimy and really sleazy. But then I see this actor talking about how he spent a month in this persona walking around the streets of LA at night right. seeing if he could get, you know, real scared reactions from people. Oh, okay. You know, and so it's like these come off as such sleazy weirdos that get cast in things like this, but they're putting in actual like acting work into being hateable. So do you and think it comes off in the movie? There's so many scenes where Paul Kersey is walking through these L.A. kind of slums, and there's so many characters like that. Do you think there's just other actors trying to trying their? I bits? don't know. I the, the movie wasn't... L.A. looks like a complete circus. In this movie, by <laughs> it the way. looks like, crazy. Nobody is just a normal person going about their day, except like the nurse on the late night bus, who's just getting nothing but groped and on a on her bus ride. Everyone else is just like a freak. Yeah. <laughs> You can't go in you can't go to a burger stand without coming face to face with 14 weirdos. <laughs> yeah, there's like it's almost the warriors level of like weirdos. <laughs> it really is. Like he's he's coming across like leather gangs and you're yeah. just like it's really like what are we it doing gets here? oddly apocalyptic yeah. and there's just like burning dumpsters. It's like where what part of LA is this? It's really escape from New York just outside of a, a hot bit, dog stand a in some bit. cases. Yeah. It's I don't know if that's a thing, but uh, they had to find these locations somewhere. But uh no, I, I read also the actors because it was so low budget, and one of these things that works out better for the movie is instead of uh hiring costuming and these kind of people they just paid the actors to go to thrift stores oh and put together their their personal look you know uh go play around and here's 50 bucks and let's see what you come back looking like Mm -hmm. so they were really given freedom to be these real shit bags i love that 
They're just like no no like brand logos, just but everything else. Yeah, go yeah. for it. And it feels that way. Yeah, these all feel like unique pieces of scum. Is that how you get Lawrence Fishburne the third with like the? <laughs> That's how you get the eighties. Yeah, those Ray thrift Band store sunglasses. Yeah, what do you even call those type of glasses? They must have a name. Those like probably skinny they're all alien they're all glasses. angular and yeah. trapezoidal and hot pink. Larry Fishburne as a gang. Larry member. Lawrence Fishburne the third. The third. I don't. I've never. I don't remember if he was. That was a regular build as kind of thing. No. I. I well, every, this movie. Every has, time I saw Lawrence Fishburne movies in the eighties or before, is always Larry Fishburne. So it's very bizarre that in eighty two, Fishburne he's got, the third. Yeah. Like, did he not want to be? He's really, like he didn't want that on his Larry Fishburne <laughs> like sag. He's really crafting a, yeah. a generational legacy bizarre. with uh, with his role as the guy who. Uh, encourages a, a blowjob. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to want to make sure that I'm the third in line of the fish birds when my legacy sees this performance. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's the two things he does in the movie. Is He's like, well, like, I'm honoring my grandfather, <laughs> yeah. the original Lawrence. He really Fishburne. wants to tell of this, hi- this history, the crest. Papa, we did it. We made it. Look, <laughs> look what we sure, can do. Sure, I was in yeah. Apocalypse Now, but... I'm going to be full title yeah. here in Death Wish 2. We made it. <laughs> Look what we did, Papa. There's a lot of cool people in this movie, uh, like J.D. Cannon, mm. who's like McLeod's boss. Love that He's name. like the, the New York cop now oh, yeah. who's like, we get this weird side angle of the cops wanting to like kill Kersey. The yeah. New York cops have a vendetta. He was like, uh, you know... We've been tracking this vigilante. Like, they've been keeping tabs on him. I love when a half hour into this movie, the New York cops are like, uh, I think that guy that we think is a, killed <laughs> yeah. a bunch of people seven years ago is back in It's LA. happening again. We're pretty sure. And, uh, yeah, it, it looks like it's the same guy that we never charged with a crime. And, uh, man, if he talks, we're fucked. So. Yeah, <laughs> we need to tie this up. And they get Vincent Gardenia to go get him. Yeah, they bring him back in... Um, one of the weirdest performances. <laughs> now I like I like how Death Wish Two is you know bringing the band back together. Oh man, they're bringing the names back. But Vincent Gardenia is such a. It's the oddest sleepy little performance. It's just and I'm not sure how intentional it is or how method it is or if it's just him really cashing that check. I don't know. I think he's got the unique ability to have five different facial expressions happening at once. Like his eyebrows are doing something and then his tongue will do a little curl and then he's somehow got a stogie in his mouth, but his nostrils are flaring and Well he's doing like wrinkles like are appearing and disappearing in real time on he's his He's trying face. to be part like Columbo as the like kind of shuffling, disheveled, like sleepy responding guy. But he's he's mixing it with other like uh Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> affectations and for some reason he decides to play uh yeah his detective frank ochoa with a cold yeah he's just sneezing and rubbing his nose a lot whose idea whose idea was like oh i got sick on the plane like what are you talking about why is that a part of the movie it's like he might as well have added in a limp like he's just added in so much weird stuff that you're like i don't like put an eye patch on i don't know do whatever i guess it kept threatening (laughs) So my favorite, we've brought, we've never <laughs> talked about the movie, which I'm going to run this talking point in the ground long before we even talk about the movie, because I've brought it up so much, 
is John Doe in Roadhouse. Of course. Who's just occupying himself in the background of every scene he's in. He's always like, nope, I'm going to be uh, clicking my jaw really loud. or be scratching my back with a shotgun. The, the back scratch with the yeah. butt of a shotgun yeah. with one leg up on a bumper is such a... Like, yeah, he's making every inch of his screen Nobody type told count. him to do that. No, yeah. nobody's done. John Doe is just like, he's free soloing it out there. <laughs> <laughs> and and so ever since experiencing the, the theatrical joy of John Doe just <laughs> hamming it up in every seat, like John Doe's gum chewing mm-hmm. in Roadhouse is like, oh, like this guy is like an extra being like, mmm, this dinner's good. <laughs> like, arr, arr, arr. But he's doing it front and center in these different scenes. He's so good. And Death Wish 2 has... I keep always waiting for the movie that's going to have a guy outdoing John Doe. Mm. Timothy Carey's probably done it seven times. Right. You get your eye out for him, for sure. (laughs) You get a lot of uh, extra from Timothy Carey. But Vincent Gardenia is just adding in a cold, adding in his tiny binoculars prop. How many stupid scenes of Gardenia peeking through these tiny little binoculars did we need? We get extended conversations <laughs> between him and a taxi driver. Like, he <laughs> develops a relationship this taxi with driver. this taxi driver in one scene. Follow- a, he shows up with his own car and then decides to <laughs> commandeer a he civilian's goes, car to follow the chase. Cars. He goes through two different taxi drivers. Where he's you be- had a car! <laughs> yeah. Get back in your own car! Percy doesn't recognize <laughs> your vehicle. He doesn't know it. He goes through all the trouble of s- setting up a fake vehicle that Percy is going to think is his, his him. Then he follows him. Then he switches. Gardenia Gard- is not got- this hard, Gardenia. Gardenia has gotten the weirdest overshot <laughs> dick-swinging privilege performance Around. This guy is making up his own rules, but half of the rules are really dumb. Like he just uh, is waiting inside Jill Ireland's apartment, but really he you couldn't. Can't, you can't do that. No, it's already. It's so weird. As he a, breaks into a <laughs> civilian's apartment and just hangs out there and is like, "Yeah, I'm the cops." But yeah, the weird. He's got this weird, disheveled vibe about it, like. He's doing these really sinister oh, but man. oddly uh, arranged things. He could have gotten the same exact reaction if he just showed up to her house. Could have just and knocked so he on just the door. Goes there and like, Ugh, like it's this weird Columbo. Oh, I didn't mean to bother you, but I was waiting in your house. Well, it's like I, a I was step waiting in your house, Columbo. And and then he goes like, you know, Paul Kersey, he murdered nine people in 1974. <laughs> like, okay, she's really spilling the beans. And she's on like, her was boyfriend. he ever charged for those murders? Oh no, no, he was never charged. But he did him. He did him. <laughs> we didn't arrest him. Let me tell you, that's why he murdered those people. Bronson is such a li- full again. of a, a guy full of little surprises, and I love the scene of him lying through his teeth. Mm. to plausibly explain away nine murders to Jill Ireland. It's this smooth but kind of believable uh, explanation if you wanted to believe a guy. Talking about how he's just another guy on a long list of surviving husbands of rape victims. Right. <laughs> right. Like, Well, that's after... They're going to get all of a... That's he's af- already been killing guys at this well, point. Well, that's after he's been killing guys and he comes home and she's like, where have you been? And he's like, where do you think I've been? 
I don't know, out killing muggers. <laughs> like really late, like directly accusing him <laughs> of the thing he's actually so, doing. And he, without a without missing a beat, is just like, oh, come on. You, you believe that shit? <laughs> Who are you going to believe? Your lying eyes or that's, me, that's right? Literally, that's literally like, yeah, come on. The guy's so, a goddamn war hero. <laughs> <laughs> He's a goddamn war hero. I don't... Come on. Uh, Bronson is such a guy in his movies that doesn't always show ass. He's a guy who doesn't always get down. All this bad stuff happens to everybody else. And he goes through some dicey situations and comes out typically unscathed Mm -hmm. for what should have happened. He gets into the thick of things a lot. And... He doesn't get people don't get one over on him much other than murdering everybody he knows. Right. Right. He comes out not okay. good for the others. Yeah. But also nice that he never <laughs> brings up his daughter or the housekeeper again after the after the funeral. They ne- like he, they are never mentioned in the film again. Well, that's not by name. It anyway. says a lot of this movie not going full exploitation and kind of displaying that he has a sickness at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really like that scene between him and Ireland, because he is not letting anyone in. Not only is he lying to the cops that he didn't get a good look at oh, these yeah. people that he attacked even, his he family. He doesn't even try to help the cops identify mm-hmm. these gang members. He immediately, you know, <laughs> he, he is, immediately stonewalling made his decision. He's stonewalling so hard that the cop goes like, you're holding back on me. Exactly. He's like, what are you talking? Like, no. I didn't, I didn't he see He is anything. already, the second this happens, it's like, again, that part of him that's just looking for a reason is mm. back. And putting this scene in with him and Jill Ireland where she is flat out like, that's the one second somebody has a little bit of something over Bronson. Like, where do you think I've been? I don't know. Killing muggers? He, You get this great shot of the camera Facing Bronson in the <laughs> foreground with Ireland in the background. Yeah. And Bronson gets this like, who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like he's just casually like getting ice in a drink. And then it's like, who? One like, eyebrow almost raises. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> uh, that was so specific and to the point that she has to be right wow. over the target. You're dead on. Like, <laughs> yeah. She did not. Uh, she has become aware of new information exactly without me knowing it and you usually don't even get that one second of him being like all right kind of back on my heels right now i gotta talk my way out of this well, one she probably could have got it out of him if she didn't tell him that the new york cop was the one you know it's like if she had kind of tagged you know well that's, what's, along well, that's what's great about bronson the scene is he gets that opening yeah and he's kind of momentarily floundering with bad like uh, come on, what hey, are you talking yeah, about? Hey, I'm just a mild-mannered architect. And then once she gets that name, it's like you get this light bulb of like, that's the that's my way out. Yeah. And it's great the way he runs with that, and it's the most you've seen him talk in the whole movie. <laughs> and he's it's like kind of quickly kind of covering tracks and explaining things away plausibly. Well done. It's That's why you see the excitement in him when he's like, oh, that is a really good way to get out of this one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I'll just say that I'm, I'm the I'm the victim of a, you know, vendetta. He's, or this a, crazy you know, cop's been witch following hunt. me everywhere, and I'm he's, just trying he, to get he away. He literally is giving the, like, yeah, it was a witch hunt in New York, you know, and, like kind of thing. Yeah, this movie is nearly 40 years old, and we're right now seeing people uh, that are higher-ups in 
Congress harassing mm. actual citizens and actual victims. You're getting the establishment is now crazy enough that that's just a thing that can happen and it doesn't co- cease the supporters from supporting it. They defend it. And so 40 years later, we're in a world where this kind of harassment is a thing that can is only more likely to happen. Mm. And so Bronson's story sounds like a thing, this victim harassment. This guy won't leave me alone. He's convinced I'm the guy because they're so impotent over the fact that they couldn't catch the guy. Right. It's They're so obsessed. And there's other uh, instances of that where, where Bronson saves the couple in the garage from a oh, similar yeah. fate. From another. Jeez. And then, and they. Just when and, you think we couldn't get more assault on oh, these cameras, we have to catch these gang members in the act this so is, many times. This is a rape gang. Yeah. This is what they do. This is their thing. They we find don't see people them making money in them. any way. We just see them assaulting people sexually. They're either sexually dancing amongst themselves to a boombox in a park. Yeah. And then buying guns, or they're like attacking people in garages. Yeah. We do see. We do see the. Yeah. They. They're like a cocaine yeah. running gang who just is crazy for rape. <laughs> that's their like that's their reason they join the cocaine gang. Thank God we've it's, got Cursey out there. Yeah, just taking tr- out the joylessly trash. tracking these people down. But when he saves them, they straight up tell the cops, like, where were you? Just yeah. Handing out parking tickets. Like there's this very like anti like It's very anti cop. Like you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened in the 70s in New York and, and what happens a lot of times when people feel like they're left on their own. Yeah. And they're, and, uh, I can see at why the a same, movie like at the this, same uh, time, this movie does not excuse what he does. At the no. same time, this movie makes it very clear, uh, that it's, uh, an incorrect path to <laughs> yeah. take. I mean, he faces, uh, we're not uh, advocating for violence here. In the first one, he goes through several of these like unlikely scenarios that involve him, you know, just shotgunning yeah, gang yeah. members. This guy who's presumably never done this before. In this one, you get more of this feel of like back again. Yeah, and they really oh, don't not shy away from idea. that. Where he's taking damage, and he's still so obsessed with this. You know, he's getting deep cut on his arm from a switchblade attack. He's getting yeah. cuts in his chest trying to just murder. The- he's taking. Uh, taken shrapnel from these killings he's not the guy who's getting lucky in each one of these scrapes there's some ugly fights and they keep getting uglier but none of them bring joy as you said earlier this awful snake-headed <laughs> seeming leader of the gang gets disposed of in the most just toss him in the garbage fashion mm, like yeah. bronson doesn't gloat in any of this he doesn't extend it to this uh excruciating amount of build up yeah he just shoots him yeah exactly and in the moment where he does where he finally has the kind of eye-to-eye contact with either the blonde guy in the beginning uh the black guy in the garage scene or in the final there's never like it's it's a uh it's never yeah it's never satisfying he's not like making him beg for it he's not like uh they just licking their tears and making him whimper he's just like there's no they, they they never try to you know it's like there's never like a I'm sorry or there's yeah, never like a there's no repentance from any of yeah. them there's he they doesn't might give not him, even know who he is he it's doesn't more, give him time to yeah exactly he does and like you said he doesn't uh, there's no like hey you're the guy who like there's no gloating from from the guys they just take their death 
Yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh, like we're not getting any of that, like even the, yeah, like root up and cheer this awful, violent, horrible right shotgunning of a guy and even the final final kind of confrontation where he does this whole like hitman video game routine to to fake his id badge and sneak into the oh yeah sneak into the mental ward where the final character is and even that fight it's like there's when the final guy is like dying there's just pain on they there's they there's just this expression of Mm mm-hmm because uh, uh, he's been stabbed a few times, but but <laughs> but there's just this sense of like, it there's there's not this satisfaction that it's over or or that he's well created any justice. There's no sense of justice. You know, it's Bronson portraying a guy who's hoping this can like cure it. He's hoping Maybe. this fixes it. Yeah. You know, he's hoping this allows him to let this go, and that after that fight where he goes through an incredibly long ruse to set up the final fight. Some of these characters get dispatched of so quickly. Yeah. And so, like, follows them, waits to corner them, shoots them in the stomach, mm-hmm. shoots them again in the face. Don't don't hear any. You know, then we just see him coming home. He spends so much time on camera stealing this doctor's badge, photocopying it, Whiting it out <laughs> to make his own, uh, you know, key. Mm-hmm. Oh, we get so much time spent on his doctor costume, <laughs> and then it all leads to this sloppy, crazy, violent, difficult fight and a neat cameo from uh, our buddy from uh, the fog. I was gonna and, say, uh, uh, well, isn't that Charles Cipher? Cy- Charles Cipher, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the a great little three-minute spot. The sheriff from Halloween, and uh, yeah, the the guy from the fog. Yeah, the movie has right the uh, has Love guys that. like that. It has this cool guy, like I said, J.D. Cannon, and it has uh, Robert F. Lyons, who gets some uh, some John Doe-ish kind of work with a pencil. Mm. He's the guy that gives him the police scanner Yes, at the radio station. Every, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's pounding that pencil against every single thing, and then the second he stops pounding a pencil when he's doing a walk and talk with Bronson, somebody shoves a, f- a clipboard in front of him to sign. <laughs> it's like, man, Lyons is really working that pencil throughout his two <laughs> minutes uh, on screen. But that final fight with Bronson and the last remaining gang victim is just showing the toll that this yeah. has taken on him. It's showing how kind of out of his element he is, and how much slower he is, and so we'll see. I'll, I'll see if you uh, the that final guy Thomas F. Duffy. Yeah, kind of had the big blonde. Yeah, the, the afro. big frizzy curly hair. All right, so looking at his page on the IMDb, he yeah. is best known as the long, dark-haired, bearded cowboy hat. Doctor from the Lost World. The dude that gets eaten when he gets who, a snake down his shirt. He gets the snake down the shirt and eaten in the in in the waterfall or something, right? Yeah, yeah. They're hiding in the waterfall and they're all being quiet. And the guy gets a snake down his collar and he goes, ooh, ooh, and then gets. That's him. <laughs> bitten out. That's him. What? He That's looks our so boy. different. Yeah, <laughs> he's such a dumb thug in this movie. That's our boy. Even during all the assaults, he's the guy. That's standing there with just like he's ogre from Revenge of the Nerds yeah, he's almost. Like, he's like bad, but yeah, bad, bad. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's such a that dumb dude. that guy, and so it's weird. It, that's the movie is is so unexpected in the the ways it takes out these different villains, and you get that guy as your final confrontation. And yeah, the order doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> yeah, like that guy should have been somewhere in the middle, but like the the 
one guy he gets in the garage pretty early on. Like that's kind of the the original guy he fights in the alley who kind of kicks this whole thing off. So well, the leader of the gang, that, that snake guy, he's the first to go. Yeah, and he goes with the least acclaim of of anybody, and that's kind of the start of the like you know well, not the start since the daughter impales herself. It's one of those movies where it's like, boy, anybody could die here. <laughs> yeah, really. Which makes Bronson taking stabbings and this other kind of thing. If you had seen this movie before you knew there was going to be three other Death Wish movies, there's a chance Kersey could die. No, honestly. Everybody this, else in the movie does. The one thing maybe we, we – I haven't even brought it up, and it's, I'm glad you said this, but this is one of the best suspense thrillers yeah. I've seen in a long time. The the actual the the music is incredible. Well, the soundtrack's great. The music the suspense, by by Jimmy Page. Yeah, the guitar. The Jimmy Page. The guitar master Jimmy Page. This is another one of those scores doing a bit of a Lou Reed like. Yeah, it had had a lot of metal machine music. Right, with some uh, some kind of carpenter, but yeah. with guitar. This was one of those scores at the time that was like kind of widely made fun of by critics. Hmm. It's really jarring. Just a lot of metal scraping guitar amp feedback noises. I thought it was totally appropriate. Like, you know, at the time, uh, like Tangerine Dream's score for Thief was panned, which seems insane to me. You know, or some of these uh, Michael Mann scores were kind of made fun of. You know, like the Manhunter score, which I think is incredible. Right. That's like, what what are these loud silly rock songs you know, well the op- actual song like the opening theme music is a bit much but i think the music in this is so effective to show his just grinding degrading mental state and then it also every scene where he's about to encounter this violence and and track down these killers i thought it was so suspenseful well yeah every scene is just like <laughs> I was, I mean, and that end Cause, cause when, when he's died. sneaking people into, the, yeah, when sick. he is sneaking into this hospital and like that final kind of hallway where he's about to get there, everything was just so like tense. It was yeah. great. It well, plus these locations are so like disgusting. And that one uh, when he kills the, uh, you know, Stomper or whatever is, they all have like <laughs> those kind of gang names. Uh, have you ever seen more rats in a scene in oh, any the movie? Rats. Just the going through this build, yeah, the rat budget on they they unloaded a lot of this money on rats. This building is beyond infested. Yeah, my God, you got Stomper, Jiver, Cutter, Punk <laughs> Cut, Nirvana. Jiver. Nirvana is the guy at the end. Nirvana is the big dumb guy. Yeah. That's pretty good. Jiver, Jiver. <laughs> I like I like Punk Cut. Punk Cut is that it? That, that's I, a real guy. That must have been that. That might have been the blonde guy. <laughs> That's the one with no. Oh, that picture. guy! That guy's a punk cut. Yeah, for sure. sure. <laughs> but you get that like thirst—the one real thirst uh, you get at the end for this vigilante kind of justice. That's really like inviting you in on the sick side of things. Is when Bronson's finally killed that guy, and it's a messy fight, and his work's getting more sloppy because he's trying to just satiate this lust to get revenge on these guys. And he's just slumped in the chair, kind of knowing the the jig is up. The alarm right. sounded. He's got no way out. He's essentially going to give himself up. Yeah, and s- until Cipher gives him that little opening, and you find yourself glad he gets the opening. And mm. I think that's the uh, the mirror that it finally holds up at the end, where it's not glorifying these killings, but 
I also didn't want Paul Kersey. <laughs> well, sure. They the movie did such a good job of giving you no reasons to want any of these gang members to be reformed. Right. It made right. you that. it made you want death for these guys so far by showing you such graphic, awful, unjust deaths. The story of Kersey's daughter yeah. is like the saddest use of a life on film. But, you know, even after, like, to me, the real final punch of the movie is right at the end. So the other thing we haven't talked about yet is the entire time this movie is happening, he is an architect. Yes, we and get some... In- he is working as an architect throughout the movie, selling this building to yeah. a guy in various drafts and proposals. <laughs> and finally, they they hit on a sale and... He's finally, you know, he's made his last kill. It's behind him. And he has this conversation with the guy who's like, where have you been every night? I've been calling you, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, do you think you're finally <laughs> free? And oh, obviously yeah. the guy is saying schedule-wise, but yeah, he's been the wanting movie, to hang out. When's the your movie schedule is saying, are you finally free? And the next shot is him back in the alley. Yeah. Hunting people down. Seeing the his shadow back, at, back on the streets. It's like, you, you can escape. The law, yeah, but he's trapped in himself and his. Well, I love all of the uh, what he's doomed to be now, almost right. You you might think that there's a lot of Bronson the architect in this movie showing off his. I kind of did. I kind of did. Given the price breakdowns on the wood paneled versus the concrete outlay, I now know how many. How much money per square foot it costs yeah. wood versus concrete. All the wives want to go for the marble. <laughs> <laughs> but the more I think about it, the more I like that we get to see him, how easy it's become for him to kind of function. Right. And it's almost like uh, the behavior of an addict when you're coming up with your cover stories and mm-hmm. you're maintaining this secret and you want to, you know, to present as more of an... Oh, I'm fine kind of guy. You get that same addict behavior when you see him interact at his work environment. It's not the face of like, this guy's a stone cold psychopath, bipolar, right. you know? It's just him presenting as normal to people to fuel his weird growing hobby. And it's really like uh, more of a serial killer vibe the more you watch these scenes <laughs> and you see him uh, conning the, the people close to him. See, now in my nerd brain... I was thinking Bruce Wayne versus Batman. Like, the daytime, he's oh, able to turn it on. So he's, if Batman killed people. Like, if this is like the darkest version of Batman, in a yeah. sense. Right? He's still... Bat- Batman is a guy whose family was killed yeah. and who spends his life beating the shit out of bad guys because of that past trauma. And they make, uh, they make Kersey believably wealthy. Yeah, he, exactly. In, in Death right? Wish and Death Wish 2, uh, he's not... He's, you know, living in he's a got crazy a man- mansion, but he's got a gorgeous house in an expensive area of Hollywood. Right, and then he sets up his kind of cave in the slummy apartment where he then dresses in his alternative outfit <laughs> yeah. and goes out at night and kills people. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is essentially the darkest universe that Batman exists in. It's true. And, and, and uh, even, I gotta love that. Even, I gotta love that. Even the early 80s L.A., we talked about earlier before we hit on the Batman thing, 
as much as I believe there's violent areas, I'm not believing the level of, well, criminals just roam the streets. And that's totally Gotham, where it's just like... Every de- every street is an alley. Overrun. There's constant right. criminals just 50-50 with humans. You can't right. go anywhere at this fucking city. Right, at you night. show up on any corner, you're going to find some crime to take yeah, care of. Yeah, and that's just people are just waiting anywhere. They're waiting in line to get food and like gang members are just like touching their dicks. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, "God, I can't go out for a hot dog without these gangs just <laughs> punching me in the dick." Like everybody's just getting harassed physically everywhere they go. You can't be a nurse sitting at the bus stop. Even with a dozen people around, it's like, nope, you're getting your skirt pulled up. Yeah. It's all this weird, like... Nobody else is like, hey, yeah, knock it off. Yeah, it's just <laughs> all like, just everybody ignore them. All they want is a reaction. God. Just LA is swimming. It's just like Gotham City, where it's just like these goofy boys in makeup and crazy sunglasses and pants, fluffy pants tucked into boots are coming in harassing us and pulling my pants up. Like oh Joaquin my God. Phoenix just gets to derail a late night talk show for twenty minutes before they decide to cut the airing. <laughs> yeah, maybe we Idiots. shouldn't give this guy a platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is Death Wish Two is a Batman movie. It's true. It's a grimy, gritty, and and, and we've done falling down, and and maybe right. there's a bit of that to it too. But yeah, just I I thought this movie, I think the Death Wish series in in general gets a bad rap for being exploitative. Yeah. I got to say disgusting if, violence for the sake of violence. If you watch this movie and you think that people are getting off on the violence, you're mistaken. Yeah. It, or at least I was not. This is a this is a single vibe. kind of movie. This is the kind of this like you wouldn't say like, "Ah, oh, you love that exploitative behavior and bad lieutenant." Right. Like, nope. Right. I didn't like any part of Batman. <laughs> right. For a movie I've seen a few times, I don't like a lot of parts in Batman. You're not supposed to like that. Yeah. You know, there's no part of me that's like, ah, oh, man, I just want this guy to catch a break. You're rooting for him to get a break so you don't have to see the inevitable outcome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's that taps into something. There's a reason these movies are so prevalent, these, these guys. But nobody, for a movie that's just gotten dumped on for its graphic violence nobody can think that violence is a thing to be celebrated coming out the other side of Death Wish 2. There's no... This is the kind of movies where occasionally when we were allowed to go to the theater and we'd be watching some 80s movie and there'd be a couple people in the theater that are trying to joke about it. Mm. <laughs> like trying to mystery science theater it. And it usually dies because sometimes they realize, oh, this movie's actually just really good. I don't think anybody could do like a fake haha this violence in Death Wish 2. I would hate to see a riff tracks right? on Death Wish 2. Hate you know to the see people it. show up like we did we talked about this a long time ago with It's Alive. It's Alive is a cheap movie that's really effective in the emotional nerve it somehow improbably arrives right. at. But if you hear uh, Killer Baby as a plot device, yeah, maybe you're not thinking. And it's so I think that's just one of those movies where where it sounded like a few people showed up to the Killer Baby movie and were trying to make it a funny thing until like a half hour in, they're just kind of silent and feeling bad. It's just like it's the just movies, a lot of movies making them feel kind of weird crying. things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of emotion in there. It's kind of a and grown I can see the same kind of reaction baby, in these yeah. Death Wish too. Whereas Death Wish was this guy just sticking up for everyday crime, and people were getting into that. This is kind of just 
you're left sad and you're left kind of like i can't see somebody coming out pumping their fist right after death wish too well and yeah this movie does not have like la being like yeah fuck yeah there's no like uh uh-huh, there's no yeah they're trying to keep this support. quiet they're treating him like a he sicko is, he is on his own and and he goes down this void and the more the movie you see the more you see him in shadow or just like the silhouette of him yeah, the you movie know, ends with the building, his shadow. Right? Yeah, you don't see he's just become this shadow. Well, this two-dimensional thing. The that, longer and he's the not, movie goes, it's just like it's a cool little transition where he's out in his like you know five hundred dollars suit and his briefcase, and he comes around a corner and sees all these punks at a right. burger stand, and the way he starts blending in to the city and riding the bus and. You know, now he's got, like, a nice coat, and then he kind of goes down to, like, more of just, like, a utility coat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's changing his appearance slightly, not, like, wearing disguises, but he's just trying to... He's becoming more and more of a resident of the night in the city. You know, it's changing him. Mm-hmm. And we we keep seeing that there's a shot at redemption as he gets closer to checking all these victims off. But the movie shows his losses. The way Jill Ireland exits the movie... There's yeah. no like tearful goodbye. There's no him admitting his guilt and trying to give up things for her. It's her realizing he's the guy he said he wasn't and just leaving. Leaving her ring, just leaving. You know she's yeah. gone. He's got a chance like yeah, like Is that he, it's a movie like He's got a like chance a... at a new life and and this movie it's like at the end of Death Wish he moves away from New York to Chicago mm-hmm. and then we see him in LA. It's like he tried to start a new life. Yeah. At the end of this one, there is no new life to start. That's it. This is he his life. Is, he is in the gutter. That's the life now. It's the same kind of thing uh, in the movie The Wrestler. It's that hmm. same fork in the road with Mickey Rourke where he can keep pursuing this life or, you know, kind of take this chance with Marissa Tomei on a right. thing that seems pretty good. Things are kind of looking different, uh, but you'll have to change some things. And you don't really get that fork with Death Wish. It's kind of just made for him. Mm. He was just going to keep lying. There was no thought that he was going to eventually reveal anything to Jill Ireland. He was covering it up, and he was leaning into this. Right. And so she quietly finds it, realizes she's been lied to, and she's gone. You don't get you you see just the rest of him choosing the life he chose. There's she does not factor back in, and that's kind of a surprising thing. Movies usually insist on having that final. Mm-hmm. confrontation with the male and female lead instead of just having her disappear and it's just showing every woman in Kersey's life <laughs> up through this up through his early 60s has now just been disappeared <laughs> and that's it that's that's the movie saying this is his, this is his path he's not getting away from anything now this is his choice mm-hmm. and i think it's important i think it's probably being more revisited now than when it came out. But I still don't think it gets quite the... I still think it gets viewed as trash. And I don't really think it is. I think it is classier than it's disgusting trash that it shows. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if classier is the word I would use, but I think it's very much more aware of its message. And I think if you watch this movie with a bit more critical eye than just yeah. uh, canon films, yeah. isn't that fun? Um yeah, you'll you'll see that it's uh I I think it's got a valid point of view, I think is the way I want to say it. Yeah, I think this actually does have something to say and the yeah. critique of it being violence for the sake of violence, 
I don't think is accurate because none of this violence felt cool in the least. Right. <laughs> to me, nothing was cool. Nothing was glorified. Nothing was sensationalized. It was ugly, clumsy, unsatisfyingly quick and sudden, just like that violence. The shot will end on this. Yes. The poor shot of Carol Kersey, that ultimate final gut punch of her landing on a, a wrought iron fence during her escape is one of the cruelest. There's mm. no way anybody could root the violence of this movie. That's the girl from Texas Chainsaw jumping through a window and not running and finding a pickup truck. She's jumping through the window into the chainsaw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so You're much right. more messed up to a character to do than in Chainsaw. And the sudden coldness and just, that's it. Like, you get that tiny moment of hope where she might outrun, and it ends it in the meanest way. There's no way anybody can be like, oh, yeah, (laughs) this movie is great. It's sick, and it is effective, and it really does have a voice. I'm... Uh, if you've seen this movie previewed on TNT and TBS over the years, <laughs> find it. It's on. Got to be on any streaming service. I think you can rent it for like four bucks on yeah. the on the Prime or whatever. But yeah, it's revisit uh, a time when this kind of guy, Charles Bronson, wasn't relegated to uh, three different Red Box movies at once. When this guy was a guy with uh, box office presence, it's a neat era of our film history. And I think this is a great place to start if you're an '80s Bronson novice i think so too yeah i think it was a good place for us to start yeah it's for our, our a guy who i assumed we would have been already doing an episode on 60 episodes ago this was a good bronson spot we'll branch out from here but this is a good jumping off point for where his career kind of pivoted mm-hmm. uh post 70s box office peak into a more sustainable repetitive and still totally unique character We'll cover a lot of those later, but I think it came to this. I think it our did first come Bronson. To this. It's a big champagne bottle to crack Whew. right there. Yeah, it needed to happen. It feels good. I feel like I got something off my yeah. chest We've or been, something. Right? I can't believe it took this off long, but it needed to happen. I'm yeah. glad we got to Bronson. So come back for more. Yeah, anytime. it's now going to be a Bronson cast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Eric. I'm Charlie. Good night. <laughs>